Welcome to Short Stack Stories. I'm Liv. And I'm Jackie. And this week we have a double feature. Olivia and I will both be reading Virginia Woolf! Short... <laughs> what the heck? Jackie, are you afraid of Virginia Woolf? I don't know who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, but I am certainly afraid of you. I'm sorry I cut you off. But for those of you who got the pun, no, we're not reading from Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, the play by Edward Albee. Even though we would play a great George and Martha. Amazing characters. Virginia Woolf <laughs> is our author for today. We will be featuring two short stories in the collection Monday or Tuesday by British author Virginia Woolf, published in 1921. Liv and I each chose our favorite story from the series and will be doing a solo performance for each other. And for you. I'm so excited to jump into the absurd. We found Wolf to be challenging and exciting, known for her stream of consciousness writing and her pursuit to put very difficult thoughts into words on a page. So sit back, open your mind, and enjoy our Short Stack, stack story. story. Before we read our stories, it's time for our little game about the author. I will share five major facts about Virginia Woolf, but one of these facts will not be entirely true. At the end of the podcast, we'll see if Liv can catch my sneak. Let's do it. Alrighty. So, some of the basics. Uh, Virginia Woolf was born Adeline Virginia Stephan on January 25th, 1882 in South Kensington, London, England. Her early life was infused with creative connections. Both her parents were prominent figures in the art and literature scene in London. Her father was a writer, historian, essayist, biographer, and mountaineer. And her mother was a pre-Raphaelite model and a philanthropist. And for those of you who don't know what pre-Raphaelite was like... um, there was like a group of people called the pre-Raphaelite brothers who were trying to bring back colors and textures back into like Italian art pieces. And a lot of the models in that time, like the pre-Raphaelite models were traditionally like super fair skin, very smooth and round with pink lips. So it's, it's a weird genre of models, but it, it's a thing and uh it's very, it's an interesting thing so that's she did that and then she was also a philanthropist and a nurse i believe wolf's family hosted many of the most influential and important members of victorian literary society but wolf was very cynical about these grand types of people thinking thinking of them as overdone and narrow-minded um but her childhood you know, she had a happy and playful childhood. She actually started a family newspaper called the Hyde Park Gate News. So she kind of, she got into her writing at a very young age. Let's get into our five facts. Fact number one, uh, Wolf's onset of mental illness. Um, Wolf and her sister were not allowed to go to Cambridge like their brothers and had to steal their education from their father's study. But later... Wolf would attend the Ladies' Department of King's College in London from 1897 to 1901, where she studied classics and history and came into contact with early reforms of women's higher education and the women's right movement, which will obviously reflect a lot of her feminist views, which we'll definitely talk about later. Um, Prior to this, though, she... Unfortunately, she was sexually abused by her half-brother, Gerald Duckworth, when she was six years old, and again for many years in her adolescence by her other half-brother, George Duckworth. I think they were like 12 or 14 years older than she was at the time. Two brothers. Um, And then on top of it all, her mother had passed away. Yeah, two brothers, half-brothers. Then her mother had passed away when she was 13, and that's when she had her first um first of a series of mental breakdowns that would impact her for the rest of her life obviously um and then two years after that the 
death of her half-sister who became a mother figure to her, Stella Duckworth. So she lost the women in her life and was abused by the men in her life. So that's, of course, going to set off a lot (laughs) for Mm -hmm. a young person, for sure. It's so interesting Um, to me, you know, Virginia was definitely born into a house of privilege and even still, which is actually mm -hmm. quite interesting with all of the female writers thus far we've featured, you know, it seems that the privileged get their works out to the world, you know, but even still, like, wow, Mm -hmm. you know, she still had to fight for her voice. She still had to fight for her education and losing all the women in your life. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. And we'll get into it later, but, you know, she fought for the voices of many women. Fact number two, she produced her own work. So despite her mental hurdles, she became a journalist and a novelist and a central figure in the Bloomsbury Group, which was a group of associated English writers, intellectuals, philosophers, and artists in the first half of the 20th century. Um, our buddy Ian Forrester was in this group. Hey. If For those of you who don't know, Ian Forrester, uh, The Machine Stops, one of our previous podcasts, so go check that out. They were friends. Um, here she met and married writer and journalist Leonard Wolf, um, and they purchased a small hand printing press, named it the Hogarth Press, and uh, published books from their dining room. And they would print all of Wolf's radical novels and political essays. Even though there were other people who wanted to print and produce her stories, they chose to just do it on their own. Nice. Fact number three, Virginia Wolf was a feminist. <laughs> Obviously. Um, Wolf was deeply aware that men and women would fit themselves into rigid binaries and in doing so would overlook their fuller personalities. She thought that gender bending was a vital part in discovering more about oneself to seek experiences that blur what it means to be a real man or real woman, Nice, which is awesome. Um, She had a few lesbian affairs in her life, uh, but Wolf and her husband had an understanding in their marriage. So when she met fellow writer uh, Vita Sackville-West, the romantic relationship that developed with between them was not a secret, you know. They had a understand, you know, understanding in their relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, something that it's something that the women talked about openly. Um, while their friendship lasted for the rest of Wolf's life, the relationship lasted. It says o- only a decade, but <laughs> it's a long relationship. Um, <laughs> like during the romantic, the romantic, the romantic relationship, okay. yeah. During which time, and I love this part, during which time both women wrote at their most prolific rate um, due to a constant encouragement from the other. Oh my gosh. Which is just beautiful, and I love that so much. It's just like uplifting each other, and everything was just open and honest, and I just can't imagine for the time period what that was like. Um This relationship in particular inspired her magnificent and bold text, Orlando, um, which is a story about a nobleman. Um, The the whole story takes course over a span of 300 years. (laughs) But during the time Orlando, the main character, a nobleman, ages only 36 years, and at some point he falls asleep in a trance and wakes up as a woman. Mm. And throughout the story... Orlando's character as they are a man and as they are a woman and have these different sexual experiences and then at the end of the story basically the character just can't decide whether they like being a man or a woman more (laughs) and all the fun stuff that happens in between. Mm. Um, uh, Wolf fought desperately to raise the status of women in society. She recognized the problem was largely down to money Women didn't have freedom, especially freedom of the spirit, because they didn't control their own income. And just to pull a direct quote from her, um, women have always been poor from the beginning of time. Women have had less intellectual freedom than the sons of Athenian slaves. Women, then, have not had 
dog's chance of writing poetry. That is why I have laid so much stress on money. That is why I have laid so much stress on money and a room of one's own. Hmm. Um, so following this, she wrote an essay called A Room of One's Own, um, which is another one of her very important profound feminist texts that argues for both a literal and figurative space for women writers within a literary tradition that's dominated by men. Um, in order to stand on the same intellectual footage as men, women needed not only dignity but also equal rights to education, an income of 500 pounds a year, and a room of one's own. Cool. 500 so, pounds for every single woman. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, it's... And I just love this concept of just a room of one's own, you know? Like, mm -hmm. a, like this is my space, my freedom, my place to be creative, my place to express myself, and I really love that. Yeah. She's awesome. We're loving Virginia Woolf. <laughs> yes. Um, fact number four, uh, she challenged the traditional narrative. Um, beyond the feminism for which she is known. She was a very creative writer and was always searching for new literary forms that could capture the complexities of modern consciousness. Um, you mentioned earlier this like stream of conscious stream of consciousness in her writing. Mm -hmm. And that's like very evident in a lot of her pieces. Um, in her novels and essays, she captured the intimate moments of the 20th century like nobody else was. She opens our eyes to the neglected value of just regular daily experiences. Um, with all the developments at the time, urbanism, technology, warfare, uh, she knew it would all need to be captured in a different perspective a different sort of need to be captured by a different sort of writer cool. someone with a different perspective um mm -hmm. you know she and we'll obviously n like we'll notice this in the short stories that we read today but she brings a better appreciation to simple things like moths our own headaches um <laughs> fascination with fascinating and fluid sexuality um, in one of the essays, The Death of a Moth, um, it just contains her observations as she sits in her study watching a moth that is trapped by a layer of glass in her window. Mm -hmm. um, and there are so many profound thoughts that come from this simple moment um, or that people would normally see as very minor situation. Um, but for Wolf, there was no such thing as minor situations. Um, which like is that. also very apparent in her writings. <laughs> I was, well, I want to say, I want to say when I'm reading some of her stuff, it kind of reminds me of when I, when I'm high and I go in these like long, deep existential thoughts, you know, it's like her writing is like high thoughts. Mm. I don't know if we want to add that in there, but it's true. <laughs> um, fact number five. High on fact. life, Jackie. I yes, high it. on life. It's what I mean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, this one gets dark, but the tragic death of Virginia Woolf. Obviously, we know that she had been battling with, throughout everything, she had been battling with um, mental illness. She began even hearing voices at some point in her life, and on March 28th, 1941, Virginia Woolf filled her overcoat pockets with rocks and walked into the River Ooze behind her house and drowned herself wow. um she had battled depression starting from a very young age and i'm sure it became all-consuming and she left behind remarkable bodies of work from diary essays to children's books to short stories and novels but the most stirring thing she left behind was her suicide letter to her husband leonard um, which I have here to read. <laughs> so, okay, let's do brace it. yourself for doing it. Dearest, I feel certain I'm going mad again. I feel we can't go through another of those terrible times, and I shan't recover this time. I began to hear voices, and I can't concentrate. So I am doing what seems 
the best thing to do. You have given me the greatest possible happiness. You have been in every way all that anyone could be. I don't think two people could have been happier till this terrible disease came. I can't fight any longer. I know that I am spoiling your life, that without me you could work. And you will, I know. You see, I can't even write this properly. I can't read. What I want to say is, I owe all the happiness of my life to you. You have been entirely patient with me and incredibly good. I want to say that. Everybody knows it. If anybody could have saved me, it would have been you. Everything has gone from me but the certainty of your goodness. I can't go on spoiling your life any longer. I don't think two people could have been happier than we have been. Oh my gosh. Wow. So That is so sad. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it's... And I will just say this plainly. Fact number five is clearly not a sneaky stack. <laughs> I would not joke about any of this, so. Yeah, well. I mean, yeah. what is your sneaky stack? All of this sounds it's extremely honestly, true. It's honestly, it, it all is. There's got to be some twist. There is a twist, something. and it's kind of unfair, the twist that I made. Okay, well. Um, but I'm it was just try. too hard. There was just so much to, to, to talk about and to discuss. So I kind of had to really sneak something in there. Okay, well, fact number <sighs> one. She yeah. had an early onset of mental illness due to some really tragic stuff in her early life. Um, she produced her own work, which I think is awesome. Um, she was a fem- feminist. Um, she, and she challenged the traditional narrative, and then number five, such a tragic death and suicide. hmm Yeah. Let's move on and yes. get into our stories. <laughs> <laughs> Let's so, feature yours first. Yes. Which yes. is called Kew Gardens. Mm-hmm. Let's, Let's get into it. <laughs> Jinx. Kew Gardens by Virginia Woolf. From the oval-shaped flower bed, there rose perhaps a hundred stalks, spreading into heart-shaped or tongue-shaped leaves halfway up and unfurling at the tip, red or blue or yellow petals marked with spots of color raised upon the surface. And from the red, blue or yellow gloom of the throat emerged a straight bar rough with gold dust and slightly clubbed at the end. The petals were voluminous enough to be stirred by the summer breeze, and when they moved, the red, blue, and yellow lights passed one over the other, staining an inch of the brown earth beneath with a spot of the most intricate color. The light fell either upon the smooth, gray back of a pebble, or the shell of a snail with its brown, circular veins, or falling into a raindrop. It expanded with such intensity of red, blue, and yellow, the thin walls of water that one expected them to burst and disappear. Instead, the drop was left in a second silver gray once more, and the light now settled upon the flesh of a leaf, revealing the branching thread of fiber beneath the surface, and again it moved on and spread its illumination in the vast green spaces beneath the dome of the heart-shaped and tongue-shaped leaves. Then the breeze stirred rather more briskly overhead, and the color was flashed into the air above, into the eyes of the men and women who walked in Kew Gardens in July. The figures of these men and women straggled past the flower bed with curiously irregular movement, not unlike that of the white and blue butterflies who crossed the turf in zigzag flights from bed to bed. The man was about six inches in front of the woman, strolling carelessly, while she bore on with greater purpose, only turning her head now and then to see that the children were not too far behind. The man kept this distance in front of the woman purposely, though perhaps unconsciously, for he wished to go on with his thoughts. Fifteen years ago I came here with Lily, he thought. We sat somewhere over there, by a lake, and I begged her to marry me all through the hot afternoon, how the dragonfly kept circling round us. How clearly I see the dragonfly and her shoe 
with a square silver buckle at the toe. All the time I spoke, I saw her shoe, and when it moved impatiently, I knew without looking up what she was going to say. The whole of her seemed to be in her shoe, and my love, my desire, were in the dragonfly. For some reason, I thought that if it settled there, on that leaf, the broad one with the red flower in the middle of it, if the dragonfly settled on the leaf, she would say, yes, at once. But the dragonfly went round and round. It never settled anywhere. Of course not. Happily not. Or I shouldn't be walking here with Eleanor and the children. Tell me, Eleanor, do you ever think of the past? Why do you ask, Simon? Because I've been thinking of the past. I've been thinking of Lily, the woman I might have married. Well? Why are you silent? Do you mind my thinking of the past? Why should I mind, Simon? Doesn't one always think of the past? In a garden with men and women lying under trees? Aren't they one's past? All that remains of it, those men and women, those ghosts lying under trees, one's happiness, one's reality? For me, a square silver shoe buckle and a dragonfly. For me, a kiss. Imagine six little girls sitting before their easels 20 years ago, down by the side of a lake, painting the water lilies, the first red water lilies I'd ever seen. And suddenly a kiss, there on the back of my neck, and my hand shook all the afternoon so that I couldn't paint. I took out my watch and marked the hour when I would allow myself to think of the kiss for five minutes only. It was so precious, the kiss of an old gray-haired woman with a wart on her nose the mother of all my kisses all my life. Come, Caroline, come, Hubert. They walked on past the flower bed, now walking four abreast and soon diminished in size among the trees and looked half transparent as the sunlight and shade swam over their backs in large, trembling, irregular patches. In the oval flower bed, the snail, whose shell had been stained red, blue, and yellow for the space of two minutes or so, now appeared to be moving very slightly in its shell, and next began to labor over the crumbs of loose earth which broke away and rolled down as it passed over them. It appeared to have a definite goal in front of it, differing, in this respect, from the singular high, stepping, angular green insect who attempted to cross in front of it and waited for a second with its antenna trembling, as if in deliberation, and then stepped off as rapidly and strangely in the opposite direction. Brown cliffs with deep green lakes in the hollows, flat, blade-like trees that waved from root to tip, round boulders of gray stone, vast, crumpled surfaces of a thin, crackling texture. All these objects lay across the snail's progress between one stalk and another to his goal. Before he had decided whether to circumvent the arched tent of a dead leaf or to brust it there, came past the bed the feet of other human beings. This time they both were men. The younger of the two wore an expression of perhaps unnatural calm. He raised his eyes and fixed them very steadily in front of him while his companion spoke. And directly after his companion had done speaking, he looked on the ground again and sometimes opened his lips only after a long pause and sometimes did not open them at all. The elder man had a curiously uneven and shaky method of walking, jerking his head forward and throwing up his head abruptly, rather in the manner of an impatient carriage horse, tired of waiting outside a house. But in the man, these gestures were irresolute and pointless. He talked almost incessantly. He smiled to himself and again began to talk as if the smile had been an answer. He was talking about spirits, the spirits of the dead, who, according to him, were even now telling him all sorts of odd things about their experiences in heaven. Heaven was known to the ancients as Thessaly, William, and now, with this war, the spirit matter is rolling between the hills like thunder. He paused, seemed to listen, smiled, jerked his head, and continued. You have a small electric battery and a piece of rubber to insulate the wire. Isolate? Insulate? Well, we'll skip the details. No good going into details that wouldn't be understood. And, in short, 
The little machine stands in any convenient position by the head of the bed. We will say on a neat mahogany stand. All arrangements being properly fixed by workmen under my direction, the widow applies her ear and summons the spirit by sign as agreed. Women, widows, women in black. Here he seemed to have caught the sight of a woman's dress in the distance, which in the shade looked a purple black. He took off his hat, placed his hand upon his heart, and hurried towards her, muttering and gesticulating feverishly. But William caught him by the sleeve and touched a flower with the tip of his walking stick in order to divert the man's attention. After looking at it for a moment in some confusion, the old man bent his ear to it and seemed to answer a voice speaking from it. He began talking about forests of Uruguay, which he had visited hundreds of years ago in company with the most beautiful young woman in Europe. He could be heard murmuring about forests of Uruguay blanketed with the wax petals of tropical roses, nightingales, sea beaches, mermaids, and women drowned at sea, as he suffered himself to be moved on by William, upon whose face the look of stoical patience grew slowly deeper and deeper. Following his steps so closely as to be slightly puzzled by his gestures, came two elderly women of the lower middle class, one stout and ponderous, the other rosy-cheeked and nimble. Like most people of their station, they were frankly fascinated by any signs of eccentricity betokening a disordered brain, especially in the well-to-do, but they were too far off to be certain whether the gestures were merely eccentric or genuinely mad. After they had scrutinized the old man's back in silence for a moment and given each other a queer, sly look, they went on energetically, piecing together their very complicated dialogue. Nell, Bert, Lot, Sess, Phil, Pa, he says, I says, she says, I says, I says, I says. My, Bert, Sis, Bill, Grandad, the old man, sugar, sugar, flour, kippers, Greens, sugar, sugar, sugar. The ponderous women looked through the pattern of falling leaves at the flowers standing cool, firm, and upright in the earth with a curious expression. She saw them as a sleeper waking from a heavy sleep sees a brass candlestick reflecting the light in an unfamiliar way and closes his eyes and opens them and seeing the brass candlestick again finally starts broad awake and stares at the candlestick with all his powers. So the heavy woman came to a standstill opposite the oval-shaped flower bed and ceased even to pretend to listen to what the other woman was saying. She stood there, letting the words fall over her, swaying the top part of her body slowly backwards and forwards, looking at the flowers. Then she suggested that they should find a seat and have their tea. The snail had now considered every possible method of reaching his goal without going round the dead leaf or climbing over it, let alone the effort needed for climbing a leaf. He was doubtful whether the thin texture, which vibrated with such an alarming crackle when touched even by the tip of his horns, would bear his weight, and this determined him finally to creep beneath it, for there was a point where the leaf curved high enough from the ground to admit him. He had just inserted his head in the opening and was taking stock of the high brown roof and was getting used to the cool brown light when two other people came past outside on the turf. This time they were both young, a young man and a young woman. They were both in the prime of youth or even in that season which precedes the prime of youth. The season before the smooth pink folds of the flower have burst their gummy case when the wings of the butterfly though fully grown, are motionless in the sun. Lucky it isn't Friday, he observed. Why? Do you believe in luck? They make you pay sixpence on Friday. What's sixpence anyway? Isn't it worth sixpence? What's it? What do you mean by it? Oh, anything. I mean, you know what I mean. Long pauses came between each of these remarks. They were uttered in toneless and monotonous voices. The couple stood still on the edge of the flower bed and together pressed the end of her parasol deep down into the soft earth. The action and the fact that his hand rested on the top of hers 
express their feelings in a strange way, and these short, insignificant words also express something. Words with short wings for their heavy body of meaning, inadequate to carry them far, thus alightening awkwardly upon the very common objects that surrounded them, and were to their inexperienced touch so massive. But who knows? So they thought, as they pressed the parasol into the earth. What precipices aren't concealed in them? Or what slopes of ice don't shine in the sun on the other side? Who knows? Who has ever seen this before? Even when she wondered what sort of tea they gave you at Kew, he felt that something loomed up behind her words, and stood vast and solid behind them. And the mist very slowly rose and uncovered. Oh, heavens, what were these shapes? Little white tables, and waitresses who looked first at her and then at him. And there was a bill that he would pay with a real two-shilling piece. And it was real. All real. He assured himself, fingering the coin in his pocket. Real to everyone except to him and to her. Even to him it began to seem real. And then, but it was too exciting to stand and think any longer. And he pulled the parasol out of the earth with a jerk and was impatient to find the place where one had tea with other people, like other people. Come along, Trissy. It's time we had our tea. Wherever does one have one's tea? She asked with the oddest thrill of excitement in her voice, looking vaguely round and letting herself be drawn on down the grass path, trailing her parasol turning her head this way and that way, forgetting her tea, wishing to go down there and then down there, remembering orchids and cranes among wildflowers, a Chinese pagoda, and a crimson-crested bird. But he bore her on. Thus, one couple after another, with much of the same irregular and aimless movement, passed the flower bed and were enveloped in layer after layer of green-blue vapor in which at first their bodies had substance and a dash of color, but later both substance and color dissolved in the green-blue atmosphere. How hot it was, so hot that even the thrush chose to hop like a mechanical bird in the shadow of the flowers with long pauses between one movement and the next. Instead of rambling vaguely, the white butterflies danced one above another making with their white shifting flakes the outline of a shattered marble column above the tallest flowers, the glass roofs of the palm house shone, as if a whole market full of shiny green umbrellas had opened in the sun, and in the drone of the aeroplane, the voice of the summer sky murmured its fierce soul. Yellow and black, pink and snow white shapes of all these colors, men, women, and children were spotted for a second upon the horizon, and then, seeing the breath of yellow that laid upon the grass, they wavered and sought shade beneath the trees, dissolving like drops of water in the yellow and green atmosphere, staining it faintly with red and blue. It seemed as if all gross and heavy bodies had sunk down in the heat, motionless, and lay huddled upon the ground, but their voices went wavering from them as if they were flames, lolling from the thick, waxen bodies of candles. Voices, yes, voices, wordless voices breaking the silence, suddenly with such depth of contentment, such passion of desire, or in the voices of children, such freshness of surprise, breaking the silence? But there was no silence. All the time, the motor omnibuses were turning their wheels and changing their gear. Like a vast nest of Chinese boxes, all of wrought steel, turning ceaselessly one within another, the city murmured on the top of which the voices cried aloud and the petals of myriads of flowers flashed their colors into the air. What an interesting story. Um, Very interesting. You're going to have to break it down for me just a little bit because... I, yes, I mean, I mean, like, the first paragraph is basically just, like, one long sentence. Because, mm-hmm. <laughs> again, the whole theme of stream of consciousness, but... Um, after I read it a few times, I've actually really fallen in love with the story and I think it's so beautiful and I love that in between, so clearly we're in Kew Gardens, hot summer day in July, Mm -hmm. um, and the narrator, the perspective jumps from 
this snail, <laughs> this journey that this snail is going on, mm-hmm. and then the groups of people that are passing by. Mm-hmm. But what I love about it so much is that the amount of imagery and importance about the snail's journey is equivalent to, if not more profound than, you know, the human beings that are walking by and their their personal relationships, you know? Yeah. Um, which I think is kind of, you know, that's her thing. How, yeah, how I mentioned kind of earlier. The, the significance of yeah. something small. Um, yes, cool. exactly. And um, so once I kind of read through it, sat with it, reread it, I definitely grasped more from the story every time I reread it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that even the details within each relationship of the groups of people that walk by is so interesting. Mm-hmm. Like she could have just said, you know, there was something super detailed about the relationships, even though we just brushed by them, right? So like the the married couple, how he talk he's talking about this other woman he was supposed to marry and the the buckle on her how he just remembers the buckle on her shoe from that moment <laughs> and the dragonfly and and just the fact that we could have just all of a sudden flashed to like a happy married couple with two kids like walking through the gardens but there's not there's always something underneath the surface of every relationship so if you're sitting in a garden and you're and I were to watch a family walk by right to me they might look like the perfect most ideal family having a lovely time but I think Virginia really painted these deep elaborate stories behind people that she might have just been viewing in a garden you know what I mean and capturing like the small details that we pay attention to or remember um, the specificity of kind of the average human connection in a way and how intimate the little details are. Yeah. Yeah, and with the two older men, how the one was clearly, you know, hearing voices or kind of losing it a little bit or I don't know if he had like dementia or something but he's like talking to himself and he's he's talking to the the flower and and he's kind of definitely a more eccentric person and then we jump to the next like the two sisters who are we get their perspective on how they see those that man from a distance and the part where it's like she says he says she says he says sugar sugar Mm -hmm. sugar i was like what how am i what does this even mean? But I think it's just as if I I take it as if I was a bystander or if I was the snail or something and I just kept hearing bits and pieces of their conversations, mm. you know, mm-hmm. and I wasn't, like, getting the full sentences. That's how I was interpreting that. Yeah. That moment. Different um, perspectives. That's cool. Yeah. And then the little, like, young love between the the boy and the girl with the parasol at the end um and this idea that having tea together is like well the way I interpret it is they're like okay let's go have tea and how he's gonna pay for the tea with real money it's like the first time you have this independent experience with somebody and like you kind of go on like a a date for the first time or you do a real adult thing I remember just buying my first toy right with money that you get from doing chores or something so that's how like I I feel like we all might remember the first time we had real money and how Mm -hmm. you know that's just kind of like an average thing but we have such a specific memory of when you know we felt like we had in you know control and like Mm -hmm. you know we could present a gift to someone else that's yeah yeah. and then her response is like where where does wherever does one have one's tea she asked with the (laughs) oddest thrill of excitement in her voice and I just can like a picture this really quirky and like flirty tone in her voice and it really just I could relate to a lot of the the small relationships and situations 
Yeah. Well, shall we get into the next one? Um, I think we'll see a lot of kind of similar themes, but in a new type of way in my short story, which is a mark on the wall. Let's Let's do it. Yeah. Perhaps it was the middle of January in the present year that I first looked up and saw the mark on the wall. In order to fix a date, it is necessary to remember what one saw. So now I think of the fire, the steady film of yellow light upon the page of my book, the three chrysanthemums in the round glass bowl on the mantelpiece. Yes, it must have been the winter time, and we had just finished our tea. For I remember that I was smoking a cigarette when I looked up and saw the mark on the wall for the first time. I looked up through the smoke of my cigarette and the eye lodged for a moment upon the burning coals and that old fancy of the crimson flag flapping from the castle tower came to my mind and I thought of the cavalcade of red knights riding up the side of the black rock. The sight of the mark interrupted the fancy, for it is an old fancy, an automatic fancy, made as a child, perhaps. The mark was small, a round mark, black upon the white wall, about six or seven inches above the mantelpiece. Thoughts swarm upon a new object, lifting it a little way as ants carry a blade of straw so feverishly and then leave it. If that mark was made by a nail, it can't have been for a picture. It must have been for a miniature. The miniature of a lady with white powder curls, powder-dusted cheeks and lips like red carnations. A fraud, of course, for the people who had lived in this house before us would have chosen pictures in that way, an old picture for an old room. That is the sort of people that they were, very interesting people, and I think of them so often in such queer places because one will never see them again, never know what happened next. They wanted to leave this house because they wanted to change their style of furniture, so he said, and he was in the process of saying that in his opinion art should have ideas behind it when we were torn asunder, as one is torn from the old lady about to pour out tea and the young man about to hit the tennis ball in the back garden of that suburban villa as one rushes past in the train. But as for that mark, I'm not sure about it. I don't believe it was made by a nail after all. It's too big, too round for that. I might get up, but if I got up and looked at it, ten to one, I shouldn't be able to say for certain, because once a thing's done, no one ever knows how it happened. Oh dear me, the mystery of life, the inaccuracy of thought, the ignorance of humanity. To show how very little control of our possessions we have, what an accidental affair this living is after all our civilization. Let me just count over a few of the things lost in one lifetime, beginning, for that seems always the most mysterious of losses, what cat would gnaw, what rat would nibble, three pale blue canisters of book-binding tools. Then there was the birdcage, the iron hoops, the steel skates, the Queen Anne coal scuttle, the bagatelle board, the hand organ, all gone, and jewels, too. Opals and emeralds, they lie about the roots of turnips. What a scraping, paring affair it is, to be sure. The wonder is that I haven't any clothes on my back that I sit surrounded by solid furniture at this moment. Why, if one wants to compare life to anything, one must liken it to being blown through the tube at 50 miles an hour, landing on the other end without a single hairpin in one's hair, shot out at the feet of God entirely naked, tumbling head over heels in the asphodel meadows like brown paper parcels pitched down a chute in the post office, with one's hair flying back like the tail of a racehorse. Yes. That seems to express the rapidity of life, the perpetual waste and repair, all so casual, all so haphazard. But after life, the slow pulling down of thick green stalks so that the cup of the flower as it turns over deluges one with purple and red light. Why, after all, should one not be born there as one's born here, helpless, speechless, unable to focus one's eyesight, groping at the roots of the grass, at the toes of the giants? As for saying which are trees, and which are men and women, or whether there are such things, that one wouldn't be in a condition to do so for fifty years or so. There will be nothing but spaces of light and dark, intersected by thick stalks and rather higher up, perhaps, rose-shaped blots of an indistinct colour, dim pinks and blues, which will, as time goes on, become more indefinite, become, I don't know what, 
and yet that mark on the wall is not a hole at all. It may even be caused by some round black substance, such as a small rose leaf left over from the summer, and I, not being a very vigilant housekeeper, look at the dust on the mantelpiece, for example, the dust which, so they say, buried Troy three times over, only fragments of pots utterly refusing annihilation as one can believe. The tree outside the window taps very gently on the pane. I want to think quietly, calmly, spaciously, never to be interrupted, never to have to rise from my chair, to slip easily from one thing to another without any sense of hostility or obstacle. I want to sink deeper and deeper, away from the surface with its hard, separate facts. To steady myself, let me catch hold of the first idea that passes. Shakespeare. Well, he will do as well as any other. A man who sat himself very solidly in an armchair and looked into the fire. So a shower of ideas fell perpetually from some very high heaven down through his mind. He leaned his forehead on his hand, and people looking in through the open door, for this scene is supposed to take place on a summer's evening. But how dull this is, this historical fiction. It doesn't interest me at all. I wish I could hit upon a pleasant track of thought, a track indirectly reflecting credit upon myself, for those are the pleasantest thoughts, and very frequent even in the minds of modest mouse-colored people, who believe genuinely that they dislike to hear their own praises. They are not thoughts directly praising oneself, that is the beauty of them. They are thoughts like this. And then I came into the room. They were discussing botany. I said how I'd seen a flower growing on a dust heap on the site of an old house in Kingsway. The seed, I said, must have been sown in the reign of Charles I. What flowers grew in the reign of Charles I? I asked, but I don't remember the answer. Tall flowers with purple tassels to them, perhaps. And so it goes on. All the time I'm dressing up the figure of myself in my own mind, lovingly, stealthily, not openly adoring it, for if I did that, I should catch myself out and stretch my hand at once for a book in self-protection. Indeed, it is curious how instinctively one protects the image of oneself from idolatry or any other handling that could make it ridiculous, or too unlike the original to be believed in any longer. Or is it not so very curious after all? It is a matter of great importance. Suppose the looking-glass smashes, the image disappears, and that romantic figure with the green of forest depths all about it is there no longer, but only that shell of a person which is seen by other people. What an airless, shallow, bald, prominent world it becomes. A world not to be lived in. As we face each other in omnibuses and underground railways, we are always looking into the mirror. That accounts for the vagueness, the gleam of glassiness in our eyes. And the novelists in future will realize more and more the importance of these reflections. For of course there is not one reflection, but almost an infinite number. Those are the depths they will explore, those the phantoms they will pursue, leaving the description of reality more and more out of their stories, taking knowledge of it for granted, as the Greeks did, and Shakespeare perhaps, but these generalizations are very worthless. The military sound of the word is enough. It recalls leading articles, cabinet ministers, a whole class of things indeed, which as a child once thought of the little thing itself, the standard thing, the real thing, from which one could not depart save at the risk of nameless damnation. Generalizations bring back somehow Sunday in London, Sunday afternoon walks, Sunday lunches, and also ways of speaking of the dead, clothes, and habits like the habit of sitting all together in one room until a certain hour, although nobody liked it. There was a rule for everything. What now takes the place of those things, I wonder, those real standard things? In certain lights, that mark on the wall seems actually to project from the wall, nor is it entirely circular. I cannot be sure, but it seems to cast a perceptible shadow, suggesting that if I ran my finger down the strip of the wall, it would, at a certain point, mount and descend a small tumulus, a smooth tumulus like those barrows on the south downs, which are, they say, either tombs or camps. Of the two, I should prefer them to be tombs, desiring melancholy like most English people and finding it natural at the end of a walk to think of the bones stretched beneath the turf. There must be some book about it. Some antiquary must have dug up those bones and given them a name. 
What sort of man is an antiquary, I wonder? Retired colonels, for the most part, I dare say, leading parties of aged laborers to the top here, examining clods of earth and stone, and getting into correspondence with the neighboring clergy, which, being opened at breakfast time, gives them a feeling of importance. And the comparison of arrowheads necessitates cross-country journeys to the county towns, an agreeable necessity both to them and to their elderly wives who wish to make plum jam or to clean out the study and have every reason for keeping that great question of the camp or the tomb in perpetual suspension, while the colonel himself feels agreeably philosophic in accumulating evidence on both sides of the question. No, nothing is proved, nothing is known. And if I were to get up at this very moment and ascertain that the mark on the wall is really, what shall we say, the head of a gigantic old nail driven in 200 years ago, which has now, owing to the patient attrition of many generations of housemaids, revealed its head above the coat of paint and is taking its first view of modern life in the sight of a white-walled, firelit room, what shall I gain? Knowledge? Matter for further speculation? I can think sitting as well as standing up. And what is knowledge? What are our learned men save the descendants of witches and hermits who crouched in caves and in woods brewing herbs, interrogating shrew mice and writing down the language of the stars? And the less we honor them as our superstitions dwindle and our respect for beauty and health of the mind increases, yes, one could imagine a very pleasant world. A quiet, spacious world where the flowers are so red and blue in the open fields. A world without professors or specialists or housekeepers with the profiles of policemen. A world which one could slice with one's thought as a fish slices through water with its fin, grazing the stems of the water lilies hanging suspended over nests of white sea eggs. How peaceful it is down there rooted in the center of the world and gazing up through the gray waters with their sudden gleams of light and their reflections. I must jump up and see for myself what the mark on the wall really is. A nail, a rose leaf, a crack in the wood. Everybody follows somebody. Such is the philosophy of Whitaker, and the great thing is to know who follows whom. Whitaker knows nature counsels, comforts you instead of enraging you, and if you can't be comforted, if you must shatter this hour of peace, think of the mark on the wall. I understand nature's game, her prompting to take action as a way of ending any thought that threatens to excite or to pain. Hence, I suppose, comes our slight contempt for men of action, men, we assume, who don't think. Still, there's no harm in putting a full stop to one's disagreeable thoughts by looking at a mark on the wall. Indeed, now that I have fixed my eyes upon it, I feel that I have grasped a plank in the sea. I feel a satisfying sense of reality, which at once turns into two archbishops and the Lord High Chancellor to the new shadows of shades. Here is something definite, something real. Thus, waking up from a midnight dream of horror, one hastily turns on the light and lies quiescent, worshipping the chest of drawers, worshipping solidarity, worshipping reality, worshipping the impersonal world which is a proof of some existence other than ours. That is what one wants to be sure of. Wood is a pleasant thing to think about. It comes from a tree, and trees grow and we don't know how they grow. For years and years they grow without paying any attention to us, in meadows and forests and by the side of rivers, all things one likes to think about. The cows swish their tails beneath them on hot afternoons. They paint rivers so green that when a moorhen dives, one expects to see its feathers all green when it comes up again. I like to think of the fish balanced against the stream like flags blown out, and of water beetles slowly raising domes of mud upon the bed of the river. I like to think of the tree itself. First the close dry sensation of being wood, then the grinding of the storm, then the slow delicious ooze of sap. I like to think of it too on winter's night standing in the empty field with all the leaves close furled, nothing tender exposed to the iron bullets of the moon, a naked mast upon the earth that goes tumbling, tumbling all night long. The song of birds must sound very loud and strange in June, and how cold the feet of insects must feel upon it as they make laborious progresses up the creases of the bark, or sun themselves upon the thin green awning of the leaves and look straight in front of them with diamond-cut red eyes. 
One by one, the fibers snap beneath the immense cold pressure of the earth. Then the last storm comes and, falling, the highest branches dive deep into the ground again. Even so, life isn't done with. There are a million patient, watchful lives still for a tree. All over the world, in bedrooms and ships, on the pavement, lining rooms, where men and women sit after tea smoking cigarettes. It is full of peaceful thoughts, happy thoughts, this tree. I should like to take each one separately, but something is getting in the way. Where was I? What had it all been about? A tree? A river? The Downs? Whitaker? The fields of asphodel? Ah, I can't remember a thing. Everything's moving, falling, slipping, vanishing. There is a vast upheaval of matter. Someone is standing over me and saying, I'm going out to buy a newspaper. Yes? Though it's no good buying newspapers. Nothing ever happens. Curse this war! God damn this war! All the same, I don't know why we should have a snail on our wall. Ah! The mark on the wall! It was a snail! So, it seems that Virginia Woolf has a thing for snails. Yeah. <laughs> There's got to be some kind of impactful significance. We should look into it. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, your story was taken by the, you know, written in the perspective of the snail and mine, you know. is about sh- a snail. Yeah. So Well, this the- tiny little snail clearly motivated a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, more about like the stream of consciousness in the writing. I think it's so interesting to bring this text to life um, audibly because mm-hmm. I found myself gasping for breath yes. every single sentence because mm-hmm. it's stream of consciousness, you know. And so finding places to breathe, finding places to kind of naturally connect the thought was really tough for me, this one. Um, Mm -hmm. But obviously reflects, you know, the way that thoughts move in such rapidity. They're not linear. They're changing constantly. Um, Yeah, Yeah, I think it's really cool. Uh, I totally agree with you. And I had the same struggle as well. I was like, where's the period? I'm dying. (laughs) The comma, the period, yeah. But it's like, that's how we naturally think in our minds. So I think the fact that she can capture it in a right in writing is yeah and i'm also just so fascinated with the way that she really you know did skillfully capture thoughts in writing i know how you know when i sit down to journal or something even you know even though i'm journaling my thoughts i think i'm ordering them in a specific way Mm -hmm. you know when something goes from pen to paper you you write in complete sentences potentially you you know, there's there's kind of a specific way you translate your own thoughts, but even in this text, she she's kind of able to catch like just kind of everything. You know, I, I just think it's really interesting the way that yeah. she's you know capturing the stream of consciousness. Um, so one fun fact, um, there's this line that says, I wish I could hit upon a pleasant track of thought, a track indirectly reflecting credit upon myself, for those are the pleasantest thoughts and the very frequent and very frequent even in the minds of modest mouse colored people who believe genuinely that they dislike to hear their own praises. Fun fact, the band Modest Mouse actually got their name from this story. That is so cool. <laughs> I love that. I've actually already been, like, since I've just been doing such a deep dive into her life and her stories, there is a lot of her stuff, too, that I'm like, ooh, that's cool. I like that. Ooh, I want a tattoo of that. I want... Right. (laughs) So that's actually really doesn't surprise me at all. Where is this group of musicians in the modern day, like, deciding to read a Virginia Woolf story that's really random and hard to understand and then deciding, oh, Modest Mouse, that's cool. Well, that just makes them even cooler. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Um, that's a really fun fact. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. So, uh, you know, another interesting thing to think about is at the time, you know, she's talking about the binaries that men and women force themselves into. And, you know, people kind of characteristically um, kind of pinned male writing as a way of capturing, you know, deep, rea- you know, solid materialist details. And then the feminine is capturing the spiritual or psychological mm-hmm. aspects of every day and how there seems to be a contrast, which is interesting. There's that line in my story, we question people who are actors and not thinkers, you know, people yeah. who 
jump into action before thinking we think that they don't think before they act. And so I just think that that contrast is so interesting and I really love that she jumped between them and created this whole new modernist way of writing mm -hmm. that was very feminist um, yeah. and expressive and using her voice really yeah. uniquely. Um, and then the snail is just so unremarkable and ordinary, which we have talked about previously about how like she captures the moments of ordinary life. And so I, I believe that this is a reminder that external details in life don't give us meaning in themselves. It's the inner life, daydreams and thoughts that mm -hmm. bring meaning to these external details. There are... <laughs> things found even in something as insignificant as a snail so i'm also like do you remember being a kid or even now and you're like go to a pond or something and you see a little creature in the water you just see like a kid like i i just picture like a kid like squatting down by a water just staring at a snail slowly moving across a rock mm -hmm. you know and all like, of a sudden you're looking at a whole new world from the perspective of a, of a snail yeah yeah I love it. And now I have a, I have a thing for snails now, I think. <laughs> well, um, a lot. And like the moth, like the, the moth in her one essay mm, where she just mm -hmm. is staring, like, I, it's a really short story too. So it's a quick read, but she just talks about this poor life of, of a, not even a night moth, a day moth, which just makes it moth. worse. This moth that's just living in the daytime trapped <laughs> in this yeah. pane of glass. And then I also thought, like, because this other voice, this other person is kind of weirdly introduced into the story. And I'm wondering at now, the at the end, yeah, yeah, that is it, like, a voice in her head, right. maybe, at Because this whatever, this voice seems to be in line with kind of what her, what she's thinking the whole, or yeah. what the narrator is thinking the whole story, which I found compelling as well. Um, yeah, I don't know. It might be a voice in their head. It might be. I, I also think, you know, there's so much imagery coming up in these thoughts and in the story itself. So it's definitely clear that this person has a very vivid imagination that's able to jump from place mm -hmm. to place. So I, I would be making the argument that potentially this was a voice in the narrator, narrator's head. It's, mm. it's a compelling thought. Sneaky stack. Okay, oh. Jackie. <laughs> Your sneaky stack. <laughs> Your sneaky, sneaky fact. Okay. Okay, so, Olivia, what yes. what do you think my um, sneaky stack was? I did do some research <laughs> into Virginia Woolf. I and I kind of got did. through her early childhood. So I think there was something you sneaked in into the um, first first sneaky stack where we were t you were talking about the kind of deterioration of her early mental health and and every all of the loss in her life and I think I caught you saying that she was sexually abused by two brothers but I believe it was just one. Okay, so <laughs> no, oh my gosh, no, she well, was she was sexually abused by two well, brothers. From my research, I did in fact read that it was two brothers, two half brothers, okay. George Duckworth and what was the other one? Like Gerald, Gerald no, and George, which important. just sounds awful. <laughs> so that is not that is that is not my sneaky oh. stuff. What is it? Tell me. But that is a good... This one, this was sneaky, so... Okay. Mine was sneaky last week, so... It, yeah, I know. So this one's, like, kind of unfair, but whatever. So fact number two, produced her own work. So she did produce her own work, mm -hmm. um, but I mentioned that um, that she printed her own work even though there were other people who wanted to pr print and produce her stories, but... Mm -hmm. Nobody wanted to print and produce her stories. Nobody. <laughs> at first. That makes sense. You know, Obviously, because she had such, like, extreme ideas at the time, you know, and, and the thought of having, like, gender bending and right. the, the political essays that she was writing Probably as a woman. Probably popular for the time, yeah. Yeah, Dang. wasn't, you know, the most high priority thing to produce so she and i'm optimistically all... hoping that people do want to produce all of her stories yeah i know it was it was tricky 
thing. Well, great job. <laughs> I, I wish just... that I wish it was the lie. I know. <laughs> I wish it just was one would have been hard enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's been a heady week. It's nice to be challenged in new ways these days. I'm always fascinated about the way the mind works and plays. Yes, Virginia Woolf definitely gave us a lot to think about, and I hope our listeners enjoyed this one too. We'd love to hear from you. Please find our Instagram at shortstackstoriespod, and all of our episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, pretty much everywhere. We will also post a link to this collection of Virginia's short stories in our Insta bio. If you like what we are doing, it would mean the world to us if you gave a review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews help new podcasts a lot, so thank you so, so much. And lots of love to all of you. Yes, thank you so much for listening. Catch us every other Thursday for our next great literature adventure. And have a story-stacked week. This episode of Short Stack Stories was edited by Sofa Pizza Productions.